Welcome to Wild Secrets, brought to you by Wild Talk, Australia's only free counselling service for people working and volunteering with native wildlife. Wild Talk is a registered charity, so all donations are tax deductible. See our website for details. In these episodes, we share ups and downs of working with wildlife, acknowledging while extremely rewarding can bring heartache. There may be tears, laughter, swears, and just a smidgen of learning. I'm your host, Francis Carlton. My guest this evening is Matthew from the Sunshine Coast. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Pleasure to be Thank here. You. So, Matthew, we we recently we recently met through your Facebook page, Fast Snake Identification. Can you tell us how that got started? So basically, um, I've been a snake catcher since as early as I was able to get my license. And um, through working in remote hospitality, I managed to um, find myself working in four or five different states across Australia and just getting a really broad spectrum of um, snake identification um, skills. And I wanted to give back to conservation of reptiles and I was kind of stuck for ideas. So um, a mentor of mine, Marty Jones, uh, he was a former employer, um, great friend, um, still speak to him most days today. Mm. And um, he suggested I create a snake identification group. Mm. And when I started it, I I was thinking I'd be lucky to get 50 members, 100 members, and I was the only idea. And um, my whole idea is to make it as quick as possible. So if somebody's trying to kill a snake before, like I could reply quicker than in the time it would take them to kill it. So mm. um, I'd actually be working uh, night shifts and stuff and Marty would text me saying, hey, there's a new ID on. Um, so I'd, I'd tell the boss I'm going to the toilet, yeah. go to the toilet, <laughs> open the phone, quickly ID it and go back to work. And gradually over time, that built a bit of a uh, rapport with the members. And before I knew it, I was at 500 and I was uh, I needed to recruit um, the next member, Jason Archer, who's a good friend of mine and very skilled idea. Mm. And then gra- it just kept going on from there. And um, mm. it's just come on leaps and bounds. And, we're about and how, many, tick- how many members do you have now? Uh, we're about to tick over to 50,000. Wow, so 50,000 people across Australia, and I imagine some probably overseas as well, yep. are just really interested in getting snake IDs. Yep. Mm. Have um, Have you had reports of it helping people to not want to kill a snake because they now have a better understanding? Oh, 100%. The first two to three years was um, like, and sometimes you'd feel like it was getting worse. Sometimes you'd feel like it was getting better. It, there was times there where you would um, you weren't sure if you were taking the right tact with it all. And um, but we kind of turned a corner. And the last two years has been very um, positive. And I get constantly getting more messages than I can reply to about um, people that have just had a phobia or they've hated snakes or they just didn't mind them. And they're now mm. actually sending in photos of like, oh, check out this beautiful green tree snake in the garden. And yeah, it's um, we we always share the uh, any praising messages amongst the admin team and approved ideas too, because it is a volunteer service. So we want to keep the morale high. 
Yeah, absolutely. I I um I think I would have come across your page probably eighteen months two years ago. Um, being in Canberra, I'm very much um, aware of red belly blacks, tiger snakes, and brown snakes. We don't have any of those lovely, those lovely green tree snakes, which just look so inquisitive and friendly, and they seem to always have a smile on their face. Um, and when they go through that beautiful blue flat phase, where they're that they, they they turn from green to almost like a tealy colour, they're just the most beautiful things. So if you're having a having that impact where people aren't scared and trying to kill them anymore, then that's absolutely wonderful. 100%. Yeah. So there is a Canberra connection too with for you. You're on the Sunshine Coast now, but you grew up in Canberra. Yeah. So when I was four years old, we moved back down to Canberra and um, my parents were working in and around Lanyon and um, Gold Creek. I, I lived before I moved back and um, I did most of my schooling, like 95% of the schooling down there. And yeah, um, probably not much of a surprise. I used to wag school to go look for snakes uh, in uh, year 10. So uh, <laughs> at uh, Waniassa, um, that, that reserve there at Waniassa, I forget the yeah. name. Yeah, but, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm a north side person. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's where I actually had my first snake encounter. Um, okay. I, it was just coming to spring and I I was just going there to take photos of echidnas and birds and the odd, odd lizard. I hadn't seen the snake at all. Went to stand over a log, nearly stood on a metre and a half eastern brown snake. It reared up for a second, just bailed along a log and down a hole. Mm. And I, I reckon I sat outside that log for about three hours waiting for it to come back out. Right. And then eventually it came back out and I was only about a metre from it. And it was like one of those really like first generation um, smartphone cameras. I got a so a really bit... hi, really high quality then. Yeah, like you could <laughs> barely tell what it was. <laughs> and he he came out and coiled up right in front of me, and I'm taking videos and I'm shaking out of nerves. Like I don't want to move. I'm worried. Like, is he going to come at me? Or and then what I saw in that snake was that he would. He wasn't concerned about me at all, but every time I moved, he became a little bit defensive. Mm. So I just stayed still, and eventually when I tried to get a better angle, uh, he just slid it straight back down the hole, and that's when I realised I was right in front of it. He just couldn't care less. Like he's mm. just more worried about hiding. Mm. Mm. I, I, love the, I love the idea that um, they're, they're not interested in you because they can't eat you. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, like, why would they even bother? Like, you're not a meal, so. The the eastern brown snakes as well, like, they're they're an easy to um, anger snake. Well, it, it's um, depends what you want to call it. Like, I, I call it defensive, but I can see how someone would say, "Oh, he's getting in a bad mood." Mm. But um, they're on such a low level at the ground. Anything close to their head. And any movement near their head, it's it's like somebody like just jumping on you from behind, kind of thing. Like they'll mm. they'll just rear straight up and defend themselves. Yeah. But if you give them every opportunity, and like us as snake catchers, we're we're trying to grab it by the tail and we're trying to get it into a bag out of someone's house, and um, they all ninety nine point nine percent of the time uh, they retreat. Mm. I've only ever had one come on the front foot at me and yeah in 17 years so that's um mm. gives mm. you a sign of their character 
Yeah, I haven't, I must admit, I haven't done snakes for that long, but my, I would say Wild Talk exists because of a brown snake. Yeah. So I, I, I rescued um, a brown snake that was trapped in, a, in the hole in a water meter and his name was Kevin and I had him in care for three, oh, three four weeks because I wanted him to shed because he had a constriction wound all the way around. And I remember after I'd released him, about a month or six weeks after I'd released him, there was a cutting through where pretty much where I'd gone and I'd released him for a new road. And I just remember my heart sinking. And I just remember thinking, if this is how I got attached to a brown snake, that the only interaction that I had with him really was every morning going out and making sure he was okay and still alive and chucking a mouse in once a week. Um, imagine what kangaroo carers are like who are feeding them like babies every four hours or possums or, you know, sugar gliders that are being fed every hour on the hour kind of thing. And that's pretty much the... That was pretty much the the start of, of of Wild Talk. And so a brown snake, which probably most people would think would be the last animal that you think of when you think of people getting attached to animals. But, you know, you you live in a house full of animals now. Yeah. What have you got? What have you got at the moment? So I've got a, a heap of snakes. Um, I've got a bearded dragon. I've got a blue tongue, a shingleback and a cat. And a cat. Yeah. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Uh, Lamley. Lamley. Tell us the how you ended up with Lamley. So I was working in remote Cape York Peninsula, um, mostly working in hospitality, but as a town snake catcher as well. It was a town of about 2,000 people there, mm. um, mostly Indigenous and uh, no snake catcher in town. And um, I, I attended a call out. And the lady had a cat there, um, the the mum of uh, Lemley, and she'd had a whole litter and she'd given away the whole litter to people around town, but there was two left. And had Lemley there, she's white and black, and they had her brother there, she, he was all black. And I couldn't take both, but I, I held both in my hand at one point. I was like, I, like they're only three weeks old and they should should not be typically um, split up at that no. point. And the the lady there um, was probably a bit questionable for um, the pet ownership because she was just taking the mum and going like she 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 wasn't going to take the kittens. Right at so, three um, at, at three weeks old. At at three weeks old. So oh, I knew I, if I don't take them, there's every chance they're not going to go well. Um, so a friend of mine took uh, her brother, and yeah. I, I took Lemley, and. Um, I'd only had periodic like mammal experience. I definitely didn't have any feeding experience to that sort of degree, but I ended up um, just basically taking her back in the in the box and going through Google and went, oh, geez, I've got to feed her in three hours. Far out. <laughs> that. And um, there's no vet in Bamiga at all. The closest vet is Cairns, which is about almost 14, 1,500 kilometres away. Just, so a, I, just a short hop then. <laughs> just a short hop and yeah so i ended up using um baby milk formula um and followed a few directions off the internet and set my alarm for every three hours for the next three months and um it, it seemed to go really fast i was taking it to work and getting some of the people from work to feed her while i was working and yeah she um before i before i knew it she was eating um dry food and then she went on to the wet food and started 
transitioning off milk to water, but that that bond that I had from a through that experience Mm. is just um you you see it every day today. Like Mm. I I can like carry around outside. She's more of like a more like definitely does things cats shouldn't be able to do because you're um (laughs) just so um you got such a connection with her. Yeah, that's wonderful. Because a lot of people would, you know, be surprised that a reptile carer is is also a cat lover. Yeah, that's the thing. Cats get such a such a bad stigma from what feral cats do, but the greater majority of cat uh, people who keep cats at home and have cats in their lives don't let them outside. They only let them. Like I know all the people I know let them out into um cat enclosures. I'm sure there's the odd there, there, there's the old um feeling of oh they're they're um transient creatures, they've got to um roam to be happy and mm-hmm. that's where um they go outside and they attack a bird, they attack a lizard and things like that. But mm-hmm. I think brandish branding all cats as bad and negative and should be cold and sh- you shouldn't be allowed to own them if you let them outside. I think that's just a bit of a cop-out when you've mm. got people letting dogs off, uh, letting their dogs off the lead in a national park and chasing kangaroos that get myopathy. And through my group, um, I just out of curiosity, I went back through years of um, dog versus cat uh, fatalities and reptiles and I found dogs actually well and truly outnumbered um Mm. Cat fatalities. Mm. Yeah, I, I I would say as um as somebody who had you know would go and do rescues for lizards and they'd come in with their backs at a right angle. It was never from a cat. Mm. Terrible. Mm. Really, really quite sad. And turtles too. They love to play football with turtles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cat wouldn't go anywhere near a turtle because they smell. <laughs> <laughs> no. And uh, I, I've I've trained my cat for snakes, so like. Only a few months ago, I had a snake get out of children's python, and my cat actually alerted me to the fact that he got out. Like the, these uh, reptile one enclosures that we get, they're not supposed to be able to get out of that. But sometimes snakes they they like to find themselves in a bit of a pickle, and it basically, if you can push your pinky finger through it, it's enough for a sort of small to medium sized python to push through. Mm. And this poor snake, it he pushed his head through. Managed to get all the way out of a, a supposedly escape-proof enclosure. Yeah, my, my my cat just kept running to the bathroom, and like I was trying to feed her, and she kept running back to the bathroom. And it was almost like she was trying to tell me that the um there was something going on in there. And when I went in there, I found my python, so she <laughs> hadn't even touched him. Yeah, yeah, but she told you that something wasn't quite right. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the having it from a young age. Like I remember. She barely fit in the size of my hand, and I was bringing home three meter scrub pythons and things like that. And I, I tried oh, to. She would um, have been a snack for a three meter scrub python. Oh yeah, like that, uh, that, Mars that size. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, uh, gradually, um, I've introduced her to the the extended family of reptiles just through a bit of um, safe interaction with scent, and I started yeah. off with snake skins. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's a that's a good idea because I've I've got a I've got a central carpet python, and 
when I when I got him, he was only two years old, so he he was quite small. And of course, as yep. I, was, I I have a chihuahua, and I've often been told that you know he could easily get big enough to eat my chihuahua. So there's definitely been an introductory process between <laughs> between them. And I also have a guinea pig, so I have to make sure that I um, really wash my hands well before I go anywhere near Dexter. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And that, um, I, I've worked at a couple of zoos and um, the guinea pigs were one of the main food sources for like the, the yellow anaconda. Yeah. And, yeah um, well, that would be about right. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, I, every time I fed the little guys in the morning, I, I was just like dead holding my hands and I didn't want to take any of that. Even uh, at home, you can come unstuck and I have the four from just you get a bit lazy with washing your hands and stuff and then next thing you know, you've got a python wrapped around your hand. But uh, you, you learn from your mistakes as a wildlife carer and mm. I, I feel like if if you remember it and you learn by it, you can come out the other side a better carer slash keeper. Mm. Mm. So you mentioned there that you worked at a zoo. One of the zoos that you worked at was Australia Zoo. Yep. So I used to work at Australia Zoo and I, I volunteered there for a while and um, worked there for a while. And it was amazing to walk in Steve's footsteps. And like you know, some days in the morning, you'd be there, you'd have the early shift and you'd come in and you'd be driving around the, the, the golf buggy and um, feeding the animals and doing head counts, things like that. And you'd just be pinching yourself going after like uh, after being in this position because of Steve himself. And mm. if I'd never uh, met him back in the day, I, I probably m- may not have made it this far down um, mm. this path because like it, your parents always tell you, oh, it's just a phase, you'll grow out of it. And But um, like I'm 33 now and... I've been doing the exact same thing since I was 14, 13, 14. So. But how old were you when you met when you met Steve Irwin? Uh, I was only four. So um I've wow. had like my parents and grandparents tell me the story like so many times that I I don't know if I remember it or it's just like a forced memory from what they've told me. Yep. But um an implanted one, yeah. I, I think so. And <laughs> basically uh Steve and Terry came out and because my auntie used to work in the shop uh, back when it was like a little little um, entrance at the front, right? And wow. um, she mentioned I was um, she, she she mentioned um, I was coming up and I was a big fan. I used to watch his shows and um, Steve came out to say g'day and um, I still have the photo with him and he signed a um, um, a, a photo of him fitting the crocodile and um, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> About a month later was Christmas and um, I got – my mum my told me, um, go and check the mailbox. And I, I went out there I got the letter and it had Queensland Reptile and Fauna Park, like the logo on it. Mm. Open it up. Steve had sent me a um, postcard. Oh, wow. Like, like, dear Matthew, hope to see you around Christmas. And um, do you and, still have that postcard? Yeah, I've I laminated it. It doesn't see the light of day. Like I just, it's my favorite um, possession. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. And do you remember where you were when you heard that he had passed away? Yeah, so I, I was actually I was at home that day um, in, in Caloundra, so not too far from the zoo. And mm. a friend of mine called me to tell me, and I, I thought like he was a friend that sort of. Um, just li- likes to joke around sometimes, even if, I, I guess there's a bit more with that one. But he, he told me um, 
oh, did you hear? I just heard on the radio that Steve Irwin died. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no worries. Sure, sure he did. Sure he did. So I went straight to Google, Googled it, and then the first story come through, and I was just in shock. Like the mm. next that day and the next three four weeks are just like a blur. Mm. I got I I couldn't go to work or anything. Like just devastating. So it had that much of an impact on you. Yeah, and I, I every bit of um media and the newspaper and like they released like uh memorial dvds and things like that uh, they did a um best of the crocodile hunters set now i've still got that mm. I've, I've watched it so many times i remember all the words mm. yeah mm. it's um oh sad it took a few years to probably get over that mm. yeah i remember i was on my way to a job interview when i heard and I sort of got out the lift and I was sort of obviously staring off into the distance and I was got, got asked, you know, what's wrong? And I said, oh, Steve Irwin died. And I then, we then proceeded to talk about Steve Irwin for the first 45 minutes of my one-hour interview. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think it hit – I think it really did hit everybody, um, you know – probably in a similar way that when Princess Diana died. You know, everybody remembers where they were. Um, um, yeah. So and they remember where they were when Steve Irwin died. So, I mean, such a such an amazing loss to because he was doing so much work for raising the awareness of of wildlife and native species in Australia and, and around the world, really. But he was very passionate about his Australian wildlife. When you're dealing with people on your pages who don't have that respect for wildlife, how, how do you manage that? I found it really hard when I first started because um, I, I guess I was just grew up in such a animals are awesome, conservation is great, just positive, and I just could not stand the thought of somebody like killing a snake. Or so it took a long time for me to get a thick enough skin to um, deal with the comments, and I, I've had times where people come up to me and. Hey, hey! You're the local snake catcher. Here's a video of one I killed, and I'm just like, oh, geez, like I have no idea how to respond. And historically, I probably responded a lot more negative than I should have, but now I've developed a thick enough skin that I can kind of take take their comment in and respond in a in a way that reflects um, the reality of what they've done. And like, uh, okay, so next. When you get inundated with rats, it's your fault. Like mm. you, you've just killed your free um, rat exterminator. Mm. But um, in, in the group there, um, we we have a lot of great ideas and admin and like um, Jason Archer and Craig Hayes in particular. They're really down to earth, very committed to the cause. Like I, I've seen um, Craig in particular spend like what seems like hours just um, discussing back and forward about um, how this person that killed a snake could have done a, a, a better job with it and um, mm. taken the right direction to avoid like a problem like that in the future. Mm. Mm. So I guess I've learned a bit from these guys and, yeah, it, it takes like a bit of a gentle hand sometimes, but um, you also need to draw a line and we were the first group to just stop IDing like we we've banned uh deliberately killed snakes so unfortunately when you see thousands of the same images you um 
you, you get a pretty good idea of what a snake that's been clobbered with a, something is, uh, looks like compared to just something that gets hit by a car or like mm. uh, killed by a bird. Mm. Mm. It's, it's quite distinctive, it especially, is. especially when they've been decapitated with a spade. Yeah. Mm. And uh, uh, what shocked me is the amount of people that say, oh, my dog killed it, but it's got like a perfect line across the throat. And uh, to blame um, an animal that can't defend itself is just like, I, I guess it sums up the character as well for what they just did. Mm. Mm. But also I wonder what, they tried to, what they're trying to achieve by putting that on a page that's quite clearly marked as identification, conservation, education, and then you've got somebody going, here, have this picture of a dead snake and tell me what it is and let's see if we can get a rise from people. And the other thing that I really admire about your page is just how damn quick you do identifications. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's like it's it's seconds almost. I haven't even seen the – like I've seen a picture come up and it hasn't even been a minute and somebody's already ID'd it. Yep. So, you know – is there literally somebody sat there watching like all the time? Um, so I think that dates back to how it started just from I just tried so hard to be lightning quick for the every ID and that's just gone uh, along the lines of uh, the ideas and new ideas and it's almost like a bit of a inside competition who, who can get there quickest <laughs> and I, I know some of the guys have been a bit sneaky and started making um, short like uh shortcuts to um just oh right just quick copy paste copy paste yeah but, but um even at 33 i'm starting to lag behind in um technology i don't know how to do that i should type it all out <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean and the fact that you you know you do or you know if they're taking shortcuts they they have that but you know having having the latin names ready having you know having those you know that so th just an example from memory, um, and I don't know the Latin name. I know if I see it, but I can't say it. Eastern brown snake, then you'd have the Latin, then you'd have um, highly highly venomous, dangerous if... Yep, well, we, we, we'd have uh, Eastern brown snake, Sudanea textilis. There you go. And in, in the past, we've just, and a lot of other groups do this, we'll, they'll just say highly venomous, approved idea. And we were starting to see like no response after that. And it was like, okay, if we just label it as highly venomous, are they just picking up a weapon or they don't seem to be calling a snake catcher. Mm. So we wanted to give more of a reality to um, be, be a bit of a voice for the voiceless and mm. just break it down into terms that it should be easier for people to um, comprehend, like capable of a potentially dangerous bite if handled or provoked. Mm. If you don't grab it and if, if you don't harass it, the snake will just leave on its own accord. So mm. we've found a, a greater um, response to that uh, in terms of the just labelling something highly venomous, weakly venomous, because mm. um, just calling it highly venomous, that could be enough to um, spell death for that snake. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you had to pick one? What would be your most favourite identification that you've done on the page? Oh, I, I don't know if I can pick. There, there's so. There's, <laughs> uh, geez, yeah, I, I, there's so many. I, I can't can't think of a particular um 
um, number one stands out. But I always like, um, I've been particularly fond of um, inland taipans. And um, recently myself and Reid Newell, he's an approved idea on the group. Um, We did a bit of a trip out to Western Queensland to search for them. And we found inland taipans breeding in the wild. Uh, It's the first time it's ever been documented or filmed. And um, it was on our last morning of the trip. Uh, we are on foot and I saw something shining in the distance. Yeah. And then uh, as I got up to it, I saw there was one snake there and it looked like he was basking on a bit of tyre because, like, their habitat basically looks like the surface of Mars. Like, yeah. next to no habitat features, um, it's basically just cracking soil. And it's the only place you get them is through that cracking soil country through the um, historic mm. r- riverbeds. Mm. And as I got up to it, I realised there was two there. And then um, they were mating. And um, as Reed caught up to me, he told me later on, like, he reckons my jaw literally hit the floor. Like, it was just um, a historic find. And, like, um, we're putting a paper together for that one. Wow. That's that's really exciting because it's one of the first times or the first time they've been observed in the wild mating. Uh, I got contacted by Channel 10 as soon as I put the video up on my page and, yeah, we ran, they ran a bit of a story about that one. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I have to say my favourites are the keelback. The keelback, yeah. Yeah, they 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 look kind of spiky, are they? I've never actually seen I've I've never seen one being down in the colder colder climes. Um, yeah. They are a they are a Queensland species. Warm, uh, they, they get down to about I, I'd have to double check exactly where, but I believe it's about Sydney. Oh, okay. They, they come down a bit through New South Wales. They go right to the tip of the Cape, and then they go right across the broom, across the top end. Right. Two to 300 k's in from the coast, you can still get them. Yep, okay. And what's so special about the keelback? So they, their lineage is through Asia. So um, in mm. Asia, they get a lot of um, toads that are in the same sort of general family as our introduced cane toad. And produce very similar toxins. So, just by pure chance, they've got a degree of immunity to canto toxins. So, as the it's a completely non-venomous snake, um, they're active day and night. They they grow to probably about seventy-five centimeters. Yep. So, quite, across, quite a small one. Uh, quite a small one. Uh, found mm. across much of Australia, in particularly the um, like the very populated areas, like. Sydney, Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sunny Coast, uh, Cairns, Darwin, um, and they they can eat a relatively large sized toad, but uh, then it's not always uh, foolproof. Like a, a big toad can knock them over sometimes. Mm. Mm. But still, one of the natural predators. Hundred percent. It's, it's yeah. the best um, predator of cane toads we have in Australia, like in mm. terms of reptiles. Mm. And um, my understanding is that magpies and crows and carawongs have also figured out that they can flip them over. Yep, some of those much more like witty birds like crows and um, carawongs and magpies, like they they can flip their toad over and um, just basically eat it alive from from the underside. Yeah, yeah. So Very um, innovative birds. Nature finding a way. Yep. Yeah, survival, it's wonderful. survival of the fittest. Um, everything adapts eventually. Mm. 
Mm. I just want to go back for a moment, if I can, about you were talking about getting a thicker skin to those negative comments um, and those, you know, those videos and those people just poking, poking the bear, I suppose, so to speak. What do you think you've lost as a result of having to develop that thicker skin? I found just through repeatedly, um, like I'd get a comment just off the cuff, oh, the only good snake's a dead snake. And it's almost like people do this to wildlife rescuers and snake catchers that specialise in reptiles almost on purpose. Like I, I, I mm. can't see any reason why would anyone would feel that that's appropriate. And mm. you'll go home and you'll, for two or three days you'll be real angry about it. And like a week later, you'll still be dwelling on that comment. And it, it takes um, a, a bit of a toll on you, particularly for like your empathy towards people. And mm. like um, I just lost all sympathy for anyone that kills a snake. Like I, I just find it extremely hard to feel sorry for them. Mm. 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 Have you ever have, have you ever felt the need to talk to somebody who understands what you go through as a wildlife advocate? I, I think through our group, the approved ideas and the admin and the mm. admin team there, we have such a um like we've got private chats and stuff going on and we're regularly discussing like, oh look at this came in, he's obviously killed it. And then it's it's almost a bit of group therapy there. But yeah, it has definitely crossed my mind to um speak to um groups like Wild Talk and because mm. I, I do feel like every time you push it to the side a bit, like it's all well and good at the time, but what are the repercussions later, like uh, mm. emotionally from the seeing? Like it, I've got dozens and dozens of messages in my inbox that I don't haven't even opened because it's like, hey, sorry, we're remembering your group, but we don't want to post it because we killed it. Mm. And then they they read the rules and see how the group is, but decide to PM the founder of the group uh, snake they cut in half. So it's like, oh, so we ended up making a, a group rule not to PM those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's about looking after yourself and looking after your, you know, your admin team who have come around you. How many how many approved ideas and admin people do you have helping you on your two groups now? So at last count, it was around about 80 Um we, which is amazing from where we started off. And yeah, um, we've got about 10, 11 uh, admin teams. So it's quite quite um, a lot to take on for the for the admin team and approved ideas. But I, I've made it as um, as doable as we could with like the resources we have. So we're mm. always on the lookout for new approved ideas. And um, if Usually we operate by like a refer a friend type deal because yeah. um, it's the reptile commu community is a very small community and normally every it's very rare that one of our approved ideas won't know uh, someone who wants to be an approved idea and mm. um, they can um, testify to their skills and um, but one thing our group has created through the positive education is that members are free to guess their ID as long as they state they're not a uh, not approved idea, mm. which most other groups have outlawed. Like if you guess a snake, you're banned. Oh, yeah, that happened to me because I thought I was I was commenting on one of yours yep. and, I, and I wrote non-approved at the bottom, but I still got banned. 
And uh, I, I, I can't know, remember. I can't remember which group it was when I was just kind of like, "What the hell?" Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh no, it's the wrong group." <laughs> and I, I feel that's a big um, yeah. blow to people trying to learn because uh, it's what we've created is a safe environment where people can guess they either get it right and like we we like to give them a give them a like or a comment or if they mm. get it wrong um like some of our approved ideas like um chris he, he's like one of the main ones he'll actually pm them direct and say uh just out of curiosity what features made you think it was such and such snake and like really go through that um oh wow that's amazing that's and, that's i mean considering considering it's a voluntary gig and it's but that's just that showing and demonstrating that real passion for wanting to educate and conserve, you know, conserve reptiles and snakes, specifically snakes. It, it, it's well and truly become like its own community and mm. um, just seeing the support and constant mm. support messages we get. And like a lot of us, uh, we, we're wildlife carers as well. And we, we have people um, just kind enough to want to donate and donate toward uh, our wildlife caring and it's mm. um like um Stephen Brown he has like a whole trauma ward set up in his in his garage and yeah it's um every time I go there he's got something new and like um <laughs> last time I was there all the snakes are full and he's got water dragons and eastern brown snakes that he's rehabbing and yeah he, mm. he's like one of these guys that just 24-7, he's on call for snakes. He's taking them to the vets. Uh, the vet that he uses doesn't charge him, so he's... Well, he's great. He's lucky to have found a vet that will go anywhere near venomous snakes. Yeah, he's... um Every day he's saving and releasing snakes. Like, he does an amazing job. Wow, that's just absolutely amazing. Um, I still have a soft spot for browns, I have to say. Yeah, one of my favourites too. Yeah, I know that... There, I know red belly red belly blacks are really pretty and the green tree snakes are really pretty, but there's just something about the attitude of a brown snake and the complete diversity of the colouring of a brown snake, you know, right from that almost just just that creamy colour all the way through to almost black. And just... I find that they have their own unique personalities. Like some browns you get, you grab them and they're just – they they just want to be on the defensive straight up and they're lunging back at you. Mm. Other brands are really mellow and like you, you go to let him go. And I posted a video a few months back of one. He'd poke his head out of the bag when I released him and he was like, no, nah, this looks a bit foreign for me, straight back <laughs> in the bag. And I, I had to actually push him out of the bag to get him to go. And it took a good four or five minutes for him to leave the bag. Like, it's like, come on, mate, you'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always remember, um, I always come back to Kevin because I had him, he was definitely the, the one I had in the longest. I've got a photograph of him and it's not a very good one, unfortunately, but I've taken it straight down and he's looking up and it looks like he's smiling. All oh, right. And it was just because of, just it's just because of an, it's an angle. It's not, you know, it definitely isn't a smile. But I do, but when I released him, he came out of the bag, he stopped, he looked back at me and then he off he went and I don't know what that was about but there was just this moment of recognition because I'd been going out every morning and going morning mate morning Kevin 
morning, Gavin. And I don't know if he knows that I saved him, but I do remember because of the way he was trapped, he was puffed up in the hole and we had to hacksaw through the plastic, the really heavy plastic, to get to him. And as we got, as I got closer, so I had somebody holding his head and as I got closer, I slowed right down and he kind of deflated so that there was a tiny gap yeah. between, and I don't know if it was because the plastic was heating up or whether he knew or what, but there was just this sort of, there's seemingly this recognition that we were trying to help because at no point in the entire time that I was looking after that particular snake did I ever feel in danger from him. I felt the need to be careful and respectful and all that kind of stuff because Kevin was a brown snake, but I but I never had the same feeling that I had from the tiger snakes that I had in care. Where I, I, I definitely trust, feel I didn't trust them as far as I could throw them. I, I definitely feel like larger bodied snakes, um, pythons, your, your brown snakes, your, um, your, your red bellies, like your mulga snakes, taipans, mm. they definitely have some sort of um, feeling. Like it, it's almost. I, because of their intelligent levels, I don't think they're intelligent enough to know that you're trying to help them. Yeah. But they definitely feel like an energy from when you're soft with your touch, when you're really gentle with your handling. They they almost work you out within 30 seconds whether you mean them good or harm. Mm. And, um, like, I, I've had some close encounters where I've almost been free handling a snake to get it out of a jeopardised situation and, um, you'd always worried about being bitten, but um, I've developed a bit of um, like a connection with reptiles where I can sense their their behaviour and whether um, I should mm. move back or like be a little bit more gentle or. Mm. And um, it's just something that developed over time. So I definitely believe that they um, can feel when you mean them no harm. So in seventeen years, have you been bitten? I've never been bitten by a dangerous species of snake i've been bitten by a few weakly and mildly venomous like snakes particularly when i started like most snake catchers when you're 18 it's cool to free handle a whip snake and get bitten you're taking photos you're like, oh look at this big python that bit me and um if you get through that phase of um if you get through that phase <laughs> Because you don't do it with the wrong one, you mean? <laughs> oh, 100%. And yeah. <laughs> like it, now now it's all about uh, social media and like TikTok oh. and Instagram. Like if you can get a photo with the Taipan licking your face, you'll get 2,000 likes. And it's like um, if you can get through that that phase of doing silly stuff as a snake catcher and like come out at like 25 or something and then get through <laughs> yeah. there. If you haven't been bitten by a dangerous one, then you, you're doing all right. Yeah. But um, touch wood, um, I've had some close calls and I've had some ones where this, the strike has nearly been quicker than the eye. And, um, oh, that's I, so I, quick I, sometimes. Mm. I truly believe it doesn't matter how good of a snake handler you are. There, there's a snake out there that's got your number. One, one day the strike will be quicker than the eye. And, yeah, so you, you can never f- afford to fall into complacency. Mm. Mm. Matthew it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for your time and you know I wish you another 17 plus years of not getting bitten by a dangerous snake thank you very much and lovely to meet you and 
I'd love to come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wild Secrets. For more information on Wild Talk, please visit wildtalk.org.au. You can find us on Facebook at Wild Talk, Caring for the Carers. Thanks to Nick McCorriston, my sound guru and producer, and to Kitsu UK for the tunes. Until next time, bye-bye for now.